Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone and welcome to Racing Lives. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot, and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today is the Marketing and Communications Director at Formula One. She's in fact the very first Marketing and Communications Director at Formula One before her appointment in 2017 that function didn't exist. Prior to working in motorsport, my guest held high-ranking positions in marketing and communications for huge brands such as Virgin Media and Honda. She's a fellow at the Marketing Academy and was head girl at her school. She's somebody who I believe is a true agent of change within the sport. She brings positivity, reason, expertise and calm to an industry known for its relentless fast pace. And in my humble opinion, the access to Formula One you, dear listeners, get to enjoy today is largely thanks to her work and that of her team. I have zero shame in stating that she is my industry crush. I'm a huge fan of her way of working, of what and how she's achieving things in our sport. And having now said this out loud with my guest listening, I hope today's podcast won't be too awkward. My guest today is the admirable Ellie Norman. Orly! I don't know if you can put me with that description. Well, um, you've done all those things. And I'm really grateful that this is just a podcast and we haven't got the, the visuals to go with it. I'm a little bit lobster-like. <laughs> you can't tell. You absolutely can't tell. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I'm impressed and also surprised you were able to dig out the head girl bit. It's on your LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, there you go. I should, <laughs> maybe I should look at that more, more regularly. <laughs> All my tricks. No, it was just on the internet. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Now tell me, Ellie, I'll start at the beginning if that's okay. But when and where did your racing life actually begin? So I had a very sort of fortunate, idyllic childhood. I grew up on a farm. And when my uh, when my mum and dad were married, my dad was farming. And so grew up with loads and loads of space. And always from that very early age had a fascination with anything that was kind of moving so on the farm it was combining harvesters tractors trailers and just couldn't really get enough of being out and with machinery and stuff and and just wanting to know how stuff works and that really started from a very young age but it was I'd say my my earliest memory is most probably around about the age of 10 just having a huge fascination much more with um, sports cars and fell in love uh, actually with Jaguar E-Type at that stage and just wanted to, to kind of learn and discover more and more about sports cars. And by that time, my sort of parents were uh, divorced and I was um, coming up to 11 and um, growing up uh, with where I did the 11 plus 
was still an option. And I think um, being one of five girls, um, also with older stepbrother and stepsisters, so seven kids, um, the option of free schooling was absolutely the one that we were all kind of taken versus kind of anything privately um, educated. And so the 11 plus was quite a big deal. And I do remember being given the option that if I was to work hard and pass my 11 plus, I could have any treat. And um, I actually chose to go to the Le Mans 24-hour race. And I remember it was a year where I think the uh, Jaguar XJ220 was kind of just being sort of launched. And since then, I actually think the the Jaguar that was running in Le Mans at that time was Ross Braun was heavily involved in the sort of design and the build um, of that car. So that's where it all kind of really started. Hang on, sidestep. Ross Braun, who you admired at the time and who's now one of your colleagues. You do have to pinch yourself because we are we're in such a fortunate sort of what everyone works incredibly hard and, and there is a shared kind of passion, but you're still so fortunate that yeah, you're right, that person that you've sort of uh, looked to as a kid from outside had a fascination with the sort of supercar, but then obviously closely followed the kind of race car and yeah, that was my treat. I was like, I, I really want to go to the Le Mans 24-hour race. That's amazing. Would you say that's your first memory of motorsport itself? Or were you aware of, you must have been aware of motorsport beforehand, actually, to choose to want to go there? Yeah, aware of motorsport uh, beforehand. And, and certainly from my uh, mum and my stepdad's side and on my dad's side, it was never sort of a football family of sports. It was always motorsports and then sort of rugby and cricket. So there was always sort of motorsports on in, in the sort of background. And that sort of very much defined your Sundays was uh, Formula One and then sort of your uh, English Sunday roast. And so always aware of it. But yeah, it was the Le Mans race I chose um, because of the sort of Jaguar running at the time. And then it's always just been sort of an absolute... I suppose love actually just more for for sports cars. So fast forwarding to that moment at the 24 hours of Le Mans, which I hope you had a good time. I had a great time up pretty much all through the night as an 11 year old watching the race was phenomenal. That's a treat in itself, isn't it? Just being allowed to stay up all exactly. night when you're 11. That's amazing. And so fast forward, obviously, a few years, not too many, and you're now in an important role at Formula One, surrounded by sports cars although perhaps slightly different shape to the the e-type yeah. that you uh, that you expected is this a result of your hard work and choosing to work in motorsport or actually did it come and find you how did you make your way to motorsport because effectively you've had a very successful career in automotive and in media and then here you are at the very heart of motorsport working for the organizing body of the yeah. biggest motorsport series of them all so they always say that luck is preparation waiting for an opportunity. And I left school actually after A-levels at 18, I went straight to work and um, started sort of agency side. And the appeal of that was my client was going to be Honda. So I've been sort of very clear as to the sectors and the industries I love and Going from that and um, sort of getting my first kind of real taste of marketing disciplines, what the role of sort of advertising, marketing, communications is, it was great to have your client as Honda because that was obviously equally sort of a passion. And it was during that sort of time that I really started to sort of build up the hobby side. And many years ago, sort of did my uh, national kind of race license, bought a track car and sort of really sort of built up that side. And from doing that gave certainly my Japanese clients in Honda and the sort of European clients there, I think a real understanding that I was sort of hardworking and sort of disciplined in my knowledge and kind of expertise with marketing, but equally very sort of passionate from a product perspective. And so the opportunity came where they asked me to second within Honda for six months because my day-to-day -day client had left. And that actually turned into sort of eight years and I think during that sort of time, my curiosity to always sort of be understanding the sort of technical engineering or why from Honda's perspective, it was being engineered in this way or the engine was going to do this allowed me to sort of actually do 
loads within sort of Honda and, and have a sort of great exposure. And I think that hard working kind of ethos of just not wanting to be the absolute best that I can be in what I'm doing. So um, I'm someone that will set myself sort of goals and targets, but it's against myself versus anyone else. I did all of that. And, you know, I'm really aware as to where am I not good? And what do I need to be doing to be learning more, be making myself better, and sort of really sort of looking at those areas. And I got to a point after sort of eight years at Honda, so this is around about 2012, where a guy that I'd worked with at Honda had left and he was now at sort of Virgin Media and I'd never worked directly for him at Honda but he'd seen how I worked and I got a call from him say there's a, a role here you know do you want to I think you'll be great at it send your CV in so it sort of went through that entire process and for me it was being very clear to say actually this is what I'm really really good at this is where I need to kind of build my experience and I need to be much more commercially minded and sort of driven and understand PL and and generating revenues and stuff and to go and do that within a really competitive landscape such as um sort of media so you know virgin media sky bt i mean people come in and out of uh, your subscription model pretty sort of quickly 12 month cycles very different to automotive like you buy a car every five years and so it's like, okay, I'm just going to jump. And the sort of other thing that over the sort of the course of my years is actually, I really like change. And I like what change brings as a way to sort of um, explore new things, continuously kind of learn, being kind of curious about it. And so I'm, I'm super comfortable with change. And so actually that, that um, thought of jumping into something completely new can sometimes be quite sort of paralyzing or fearful for people. But I'm like, actually, this is really exciting. Like, I always think, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I don't work on the front line of saving lives. So it's unlikely I'm going to die from this experience. Um, so that's always a bonus. So just give it a go. Like, And so I jumped, learned loads within sort of Virgin Media, and then uh, just had a phone call from this American guy called Sean Bratches. And he's like, I've been given your name and your number. Do you know Formula One? I was like, of course I know Formula One. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, do you want to have a chat? um, I've been given your name and I need someone to come and set up sort of marketing. Um, And that's how I sort of really got into it. And I think that combination of being passionate about motorsports from um, a young age and having an awareness and appreciation of it, coupled with having had automotive experience and also sort of media and entertainment experience, most probably gave me a number of sort of ingredients that from Sean's perspective was like, actually, this could, this, this person could be kind of great for the business and what we need to sort of do. That coupled with the fact that actually the, the opportunity to start something from a blank sheet of paper was incredibly sort of appealing and I, that's where I genuinely sort of think, wow, I've ended up in Formula One, to your point, the sort of organizing body of the commercial rights holder. But I never set out from that young age of saying, this is where I want to work. It's almost been a sort of um, on the one side, you go, I'm so, so lucky. But I think coming back to my sort of earlier sort of quote, that um, luck is, is sort of preparation, waiting for an opportunity that throughout sort of my career to date, I've hopefully been sort of uh, trying to sort of teach myself or, or learn a number of skills that then become of kind of value. I had the exact same thinking in building my career, which obviously took its time for me to get to Formula One. But it was very much once I'd identified what I was good at and how I wanted to use that, my sort of tagline for myself was, "Okay, I'm loving marketing. I love communication. It's something that I'm passionate about. It seems I'm quite good at it, as in as opposed to maths, where I definitely reached a level where I couldn't go any further. My brain just wouldn't allow it. And my my sort of additional thing was I want to be able to work outside. I want to be able to travel. I don't want to be in the same office every day. What is there in the world that's, you know, achievable? And, and, and somehow I became aware of motorsport. I didn't grow up with it. And from then onwards, it was, okay, 
working for a team seems like a very good goal. How do you go about it? And I collected experiences and knowledge from various different jobs, such as working on the agency side to have experience of clients, working from a series organizing side to understand genuinely how things come together when you've got a race that you've got to put together working for sponsors to understand that side, working for smaller teams and understand this. So then finally, I felt like I arrived at a Formula One role with all the tools that I needed. Obviously, within about five minutes, realizing that that was 1% of what I actually needed to know. And then obviously, I was on this amazing journey. But it is that thing of having the mindset to be prepared, isn't it? And having not necessarily a goal, I wouldn't even say, but just an interest that you're happy to go in that direction rather than wandering aimlessly. But then I can't even fault somebody that would wander aimlessly and just be open to opportunities because that can lead to amazing careers as well. It can. I think um, part of it comes down to, you sort of uh, touched upon it yourself, of that the self-awareness of genuinely knowing what makes you tick or, or what gives you fulfillment. And I think once you can boil that down into kind of a core value set or kind of like a characteristics actually that's what's so transferable and it's it's the added bonus of knowing what you're passionate about or what gives you that sort of extra energy so whether it's kind of motorsports or a sort of another industry and for me that appeal of whether it's motorsport and automotive I've always worked in big brands like blue chip brands where pretty much the entire world would have heard of that brand so from kind of Honda, Virgin, Formula mm. One. But the interesting aspect to to those brands for me is they've had a challenger mentality within the kind of marketplace. Now, the, the slight difference with Formula One is it is the sort of pinnacle. So it's not a challenger in the traditional sense. But I love the fact that we need to apply a challenger mentality into how do we be disruptive within what is a sort of normal traditional category framework to appeal to and have a relevance to a new audience. And this is where sort of the the interesting things about how we make the sport accessible whilst being very respectful as to the DNA and the essence of the sport and the kind of core product. And I love that uh, sort of tension that exists between the sort of motorsport core product side or being true to the kind of racing but then what are the sort of frameworks or the rules that you can break or disrupt or kind of push in order to grow your fan base? I've genuinely, again, this is the fan side of me coming out, but I've loved seeing what you've done over the last three years. And I think I read somewhere quite quickly, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you described when you arrived in Formula One, you described almost as taking on a 60-year-old startup which I thought that was that was the perfect description for it. And it had so much potential. So to be allowed to witness what you and your colleagues have done in the last three years, I'll put my hand up, I'm a fan. You know, what we had and what we have now, to me, is not the end product. I think it's we're just on this really interesting, cool journey. What's amazing is when you think about what we've introduce some of those things have worked some of those things haven't worked but that's all part of that kind of like journey and learning and the ability to be able to kind of do that and I think the ability to work closely with the F1 teams with our sort of promoters with the kind of broadcasters we're all in this together we've got incredible commercial partners at team level and at a sports level as well and actually we all have the same objective, which is to grow the sport. And it's just knowing where are the areas that we can kind of push on and deliver that and being remembering as well the sort of value um, that we can give fans and actually the role that we have. And, and even more so for me through the pandemic last year was this sense of responsibility that sports is so powerful at uniting people. And and there is enough diversity that we're seeing through the world that has been sort of heightened and amplified and and bubbled to the surface through, I think, the pandemic and what we saw with um, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, that actually we do have a responsibility as a sport to use it to unite people and recognise the escapism that we give people. 
and a sense of consistency and familiarity when we've lost so much of that. And that's where sort of the We Races One really was kind of born from, of wanting to recognize that, but also use it as a way to sort of do good and sort of, uh, sort of give back. Because there are, the more I sort of read and talk to people and learn, there are just incredible stories that come out of Formula One on the sort of innovation and the sort of technology side, you go, wow, I mean, that makes a massive difference to people's lives in the real world and no one knows it. It's the hidden secret of Formula One. When I look at what we can do, as it's obviously my experience is based on one team, but I've worked with other teams. I've actually, one of my jobs was to extract ways of working from a Formula One team and apply it to my manufacturer. At the time, this was McLaren and GSK. So toothpastes and uh, Maximusson and Ribena. And also just even on the day to day, you know, when you're watching a pit stop, when you're watching how quickly a Formula One team can turn things around. One of the things I'm proudest of from last year was what that we were able to help with the efforts to deal with COVID. Yeah. You know, no matter what projects we took on, everyone came together and actually tried to do stuff. Mm. But that technology or that way of working and that speed, that's always been there and yeah. it's it needs to be tapped into more and I know every team has on the small or larger scale has a stream that they apply to other manufacturing processes or advice yeah. that they give to other brands and all of it's a lot of it is hidden and because you might not want to boast about it because there might not be time to mm. you know whatever the policies are but that ingenuity that relentlessness that ability to turn things around and it's a can-do attitude at every That's level great. as well it's it's amazing I love it yeah. I really love it and those are the bits that when you can extract and tell those stories the high pressure and the intensity of going racing is the best laboratory to kind of test and uh, I genuinely can't think of any other sort of industry that would be so proficient at creative problem solving and doing it under such high pressure and intensity and at such speed. And the fantastic thing is there are so many kind of different variables or things won't go to plan as you thought it would. And that's exactly what racing is. Whilst we're talking, I'm thinking of engineering, but we do that in every discipline. Yeah. So as far as marketing, communication, social media, we turn around things way faster than I would expect anyone else to yeah. be able to. I'm even thinking of our chefs, honestly, <laughs> the ability to cook so much food <laughs> so quickly. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I love cooking. I love eating. But um, I'm often like, hmm, maybe I'll invite myself to have a lesson with uh, with with these guys here and see if I can kind of bring any of it home. I mean, my goodness, when we're allowed to actually socialize again, I think I would have lost all ability to kind of cook for more than two people. As soon as I have like 10 or 12, I'll be like, hold on, where do I start again? I'm not even trying. <laughs> One of the other things, actually, I'm sorry that you touched upon that I, I just wanted to reinforce. When you talked about having that responsibility of, you know, bringing the sports to everyone else who couldn't be there and also representing diversity or pushing those messages I just wanted to say that I felt that the most last year I've always been aware of the responsibility that we have that we effectively hold a sport in our hands and especially you and I in terms of the roles that we play we have that voice in our hands it's it's our job to communicate that and I felt so proud of what we were doing last year and I felt so responsible of making sure that the fans that grace us with their presence mm. through online channels or tv channels got as much as they could possibly have in a year where we knew they wouldn't be able to join us physically yeah, yeah i agree and my individual responsibility and our collective responsibilities you're right we're holding this sport in our hands and none of us are going to be here forever and we have to get keep it and put it in the best kind of position to hand it on to the sort of next generation to continue that sort of journey. You know, all of us are a role model and a brand ambassador to a certain sort of extent. And, you know, that certainly doesn't mean that everything is perfect all the time, but it's recognizing how we need to sort of behave and, and that responsibility we're carrying. And then actually all of those things that aren't perfect we can address that sort of uh, together in kind of private but publicly this is our sort of responsibility and this is how we need to be sort of looking at the sport as a whole 
definitely. Which is actually the perfect cue for my next question, which I love asking. And that's to say, what's the biggest misconception about your job? That is such a good question. I, I always think um, there are the obvious misconceptions, which is the sort of glamorous side, because we travel to so many places. And actually, you know, it's it's one of the aspects I genuinely sort of love, because for me, there is nothing richer than being in different countries with different cultures and just having all of your senses touched from different smells, colors, kind of food, like all of that I adore. It's never like you're on holiday and the hours are long, but I think I always kind of think that, you know, I'm just incredibly fortunate, but I think that would be a a sort of a, a misconception. One other misconception is often that in a marketing kind of comms role, people think you do the sort of coloring in bit or the sort of uh, the advertising. And that is one aspect and it, it is an output, but there's so much more in terms of what marketing genuinely is. And it's very much around being able to drive long-term sustainable growth. And so, yes, actually something you see on social media or something you see on a TV might be an output, but that isn't kind of just what we do the interesting thing with coming into sort of formula one and it being sort of me describing it as kind of that 67 70 year old startup is it was part turnaround of a business and part startup of a business and actually that startup bit was there had never been any kind of marketing and so it would be unfair of me to expect people to know what marketing is when it hasn't existed. And so you're on this uh, journey together to show people the value and the power of marketing when you kind of get it right. And you're, you're at the start of a journey together, defining like, what is the problem that we're here to solve together? Who is the audience? What is a seamless end-to-end journey? And yes, an output might be this and this, but we've got a few things to kind of really define um, together. And that will, that has changed over time. And yes, we're making kind of progress. Um, but I often think that's one of the, the easiest kind of misconceptions in my world. Definitely. And actually having, getting to hear you speak about marketing and communication so well, you know, I'm listening to it, understanding what you're saying, having experience of it. But I'm thinking of everyone that's listening, that's at school that's thinking of a potential career and understanding that it's marketing first and then it's your environment second yeah. it's very nice to be able to hear you talk about the work that you do in such good terms I love it I'm still learning every day trust me yeah but that's key to everything actually one yeah. of the things I want to ask you about is do you value learning because it's one of the things that keep me coming back when we talk about Formula One we talk about motorsport it works in cycles it's very much a one-year cycle every time and you could be you could be at the risk of letting it be repetitive. I was never an academic learner, so really average throughout school and, and sort of hence why it felt the right thing for me to do was to leave after A-levels and kind of not go to university. But I love practical learning. And so actually that ability, much more like apprenticeships now, of, of being in an environment, being able to observe even like the process of osmosis of, of seeing how something happens around you, then actually reading articles, going on courses to sort of learn the theory side, but being able to apply it in a, in a practical or a real life environment mm-hmm. is how I much prefer to sort of learn versus just all kind of like theory. And so for me now, learning is actually I learn loads from my team all the time. It's, it's so cool to have a diverse team in terms of um, nationalities age ranges and kind of backgrounds and so I'm often like hold on what's all this about just explain this to me and then I'll kind of be like oh wow okay that's pretty cool and I'll go off and do some kind of reading in an evening or across a weekend because I'm just kind of curious to understand it from a different perspective and that's how I sort of tend to do learning watch a lot of stuff on YouTube uh, like long text is not good for me. I, I get sort of very distracted and have to reread. So I think there's elements of like dyslexia. So it's like bite-sized stuff and come back and apply it. And just spending time with sort of other people. Everyone has incredible kind of skill and experiences. And I think the way that you we can learn and we do learn is just by being sort of open to kind of listening to that. 
and then actually knowing when and how to apply it and, and to do that in a collaborative way. So it it should never be sort of a one-way street. But, you know, ultimately in this sustainable, long-term sustainable growth, it is about win-win situations and having a value exchange that is good for the fan and good for the sport. And, and you know, you've always got to have that balance between those two sides. It can't just be we're going to focus over here and to all extents purposes not care about anything else. Nothing is a linear journey in life. It's so true. And actually, that's one of the things, I mean, there's many things I love about motorsport and Formula One, but one of the things I love by default, we end up in the same paddock, all of us end up in the same paddock throughout, you know, different worlds. So you're exposed to incredible people who do these amazing jobs. And I find I learn so much from my colleagues, of course, but then also the people that do similar jobs at the other teams. And we often joke about this element of competition. I'm the same as you. I'm not necessarily competitive other with other people, but I very much I'm competitive with myself. I drive myself to you know to move forward and, and always do better. But I often ask my colleagues whether, you know, with all our teams competing against each other, do we then end up competing against each other in, in our respective terms? And actually we all joke about it because we all work together. If I don't know something, if something's changed on one of the platforms and I'm like, oh God, I need to learn about this one now, I'm going to need this. It's quite often I'm going to reach out to one of my colleagues at one of the other teams and and ask them to explain it to me and vice versa. And I love that. I love that, you know, outwardly, we are we are a competitive sport. That's literally what we're supposed to be doing. But behind the scenes, we're all working together. We're all helping each mm. other. And I wanted to ask you, actually, do you feel the element of competition? Because, again, you're you're kind of the umbrella brand that sort of, you know, holds us all as <laughs> team within the paddock. But, but I still feel like it's contagious. It is. And I think what's really, really great, and you use the word kind of drive, and the competitive element that exists throughout sort of Formula One at every sort of level, at every single discipline, that allows the drive, the momentum and the sort of progression. And I think actually that improves and uh, like raises the bar across everything. And that's really, really healthy. Um, I think the worst thing that could ever happen is you stand still because by the very definition if we stand still we're we're actually going backwards and so it's more a case of actually how are we making sure that we are moving faster than anyone else any other brand any other industry around us to ensure that we kind of maintain the sort of pinnacle but it's redefining I think the rules around what do we mean by sort of pinnacle So, yes, you want to be the best, but I would say the best needs to be an aspirational, accessible best versus an elitist best. And that's what I love is like, yes, the momentum keeps going. And yes, you want to do that at the fastest way possible. But it's like, what are the new rules of engagement? Yeah, I would very much like us to be the best at being diversified. I would like very much for us to be the best at being accessible for school children that are watching us and thinking of future careers. Yeah, those are good bests to have for sure. What's so great with the people in the sport is when everyone steps back, we all are appreciative of uh, how fortunate we are. So it hasn't come without hard work and sacrifices but I think there is a recognition of like this is really bloody cool and we're fortunate to do what we do and and actually coupled to that is the generosity of people within the sport to give time because we all know it's important for the next generation or for kids to be inspired and um, I don't know about you sort of orally but when I went to the kind of careers office like trust me there was like no chat about well no chat even about marketing but definitely not kind of technology definitely not innovation and yet when you actually scratch the surface about how that can make lives better there are a plethora of kind of roles that exist within our own sort of sport and industry but you know everywhere else and so I think you know when you think about our own experiences there is a willingness and a generosity to give time back to go and talk to schools or to talk to kids or to be part of um, of groups to really talk about all of these roles that do exist, but 
actually just never learn about when you go to your careers office there's so much more to everything than you can ever imagine when you're about to leave school and I'm thankful for the internet and social media because that's blown the doors off of everything you can look into things so much more than we could when we were at school I came into motorsport as a complete outsider I didn't grow up with it I didn't know anybody in it it was a closed door idea that I thought was cool and and one of my challenges was to see if I could break through the door and I I quite enjoyed that and that ended up defining a career funnily enough but because that's how long it took me but to have had access to it all or knew it existed Mm. I want to repair that I want to know that the person coming behind me has a better time finding out what's going on than I did for sure I yeah I think that's 100% uh, spot and I also think for younger people the most powerful thing to have and to kind of nurture and to grow is um, a sense of curiosity to kind of ask questions because that propels the learning and it's having that sort of desire to want to know what else is there what else exists out there Um, and and you know when I think about um, kind of school and and the kind of skills that you want and actually even when I'm kind of building and recruiting for my team it's 100% that attitude versus actually do they have the skill set right now you can kind of pretty much teach everything I mean thankfully I'm not a doctor or a surgeon because clearly you got to do follow follow the kind of uh, established uh, study there but I think for everything else that sense of kind of curiosity of uh, just wanting to kind of always learn to better to explore is so powerful because it does unlock actually sort of um, everything else. I recognise that in other people and I absolutely love it. I think it's one of my favourite qualities to find in people. We've talked a lot about the process and the experience and competition. I couldn't call it the end journey, but how would you define success? How would you define the part where you're like, okay, we're taking stock of what we're doing. It's going okay. You know, for me, it could be a podium. it lasted five minutes and then we were back at doing the next thing it's really hard because I I think because I'm always so competitive against myself of wanting to do better the first thing if something's gone well is it's like okay that went well and then I'm like no but I could have done that better or oh god I wish I'd done that so I'm very very self kind of critical I think one of the things I've sort of taken stock of is how important celebration is for the people in your team and actually being able to celebrate those smallest wins means so much because the pace and the treadmill we're on is just so fast that we never ever kind of get off um, stop and take stock and go wow actually we really have changed some things and so we need to do more of that it's certainly something I'm not very good at myself It's always external, isn't it? We are our biggest critics and it's actually quite hard to be our biggest champions. But I think we need to learn how to do that. But I have to say from experience of being in teams at different levels and having had excellent bosses, slightly less good bosses from which you learn as well. Mm. Terrible bosses definitely learn a lot from those as well. It just happens. It's life. I think receiving, this sounds terrible. It's the wrong wording. Receiving praise or being taught to stop and Mm. acknowledge the wins, whether they're small, big, I find that hugely motivational and I hate it. It's one of my bugbears where, and I, and I teach myself not to do that, that if you hear from somebody within your team that's responsible for more than perhaps you are, if you hear from that person only when things go wrong, yeah, that's awful. It, yeah. it just affects your yeah. motivation. So to, to be able to recognize good things from your team, good things from yourself yeah. is huge, absolutely huge. Yeah. And the power of saying thank you. It's so strong. It's so strong. And when you think about it, it's such a small thing. I love saying thank you. <laughs> One thing that I've learned, obviously I'm, I'm French and I've lived in England a really long time, but there's still things that I see as inherently British, which, you know, I should give up. I'm, I'm as British as they come now, but is the are people saying sorry too much. And I always think, no, don't say sorry unless genuinely it's a good use of yeah. the words yeah. and, and, the, and the emotion. Don't say yeah. sorry because you knocked something and no one's around. <laughs> yeah. or, um, or flip it. So instead of going, oh, my God, I'm sorry I'm late. Thank you for your patience in waiting for me. Yes. So much more powerful. And it's such, such a positive tone. It's brilliant. We talked about work hours 
we talked about what it takes to work in this sport. How do you balance your work life and how do you manage your family and your friends' expectations when you do have to travel, you do have to be away for long periods of time? The world we live in now and, and definitely with us all sort of working from home and in sort of various national lockdowns, nothing is defined and so it is a blend and um, I struggle with it and it it comes from inside wanting to be better and I'm never quite satisfied that I've done everything I need to do and for me that creeps into working all the time and it will often take uh, my husband will to be like okay enough now put the laptop lid down and actually sort of uh, make sure that you're sort of still setting some kind of boundaries because you know often when we've been on holiday and I come back I'm so much better for it because I've been in a different environment and my mind's just been kind of actually freer to think about some of the kind of big long-term things or you know things will come into my head I'll be like okay yeah we should definitely kind of look at that or that's a way to solve that problem and with the kind of lockdown that we're living in I love mornings so I'm absolutely kind of a morning person and it's kind of knowing when you're at your best and building your sort of day around that so I always do an hour's work from like 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning, which is essentially where I can be quite sort of focused and proactive. I then hours exercise 7.30 to 8.30, and then I can kind of start and be available to the sort of team. So I'm trying to sort of make sure I've got a good routine. And then the sort of uh, balancing with sort of friends and family, I've got I've got a big family so it's always really hard to feel like you're actually getting around and spending enough time with everyone and the same with kind of friends so this year has been so reliant upon video calls and actually just kind of picking up the phone and when things have been a little bit more sort of relaxed actually just combining it with uh, meeting up and having a walk outside so I love space and uh you know it's great Will and I live sort of out of out of London we're in West Sussex so actually just having that kind of space on your doorstep for me is that way of uh, being able to kind of switch off and sort of just decompress and actually the stillness sometimes and the different noises of the countryside for me is a brilliant juxtaposition to our jobs and the environment we're in and the sort of other thing for me is the creativity that I get from cooking of actually kind of being able to kind of make something and, and putting different flavors together so you know can't sing can't draw can do very very little on that sort of traditional kind of creative space but food for me is that area where it's something I love, but it's also a great sort of focus of decompressing away from kind of work. And, you know, you need to spend time and, and just be focused on some of those things. You can't be like distracted and multitasking and stuff. It's a very sense driven mm. activity as well. So it touches into all your cognitive senses, which is great. You've mentioned one thing in the past, which I wanted to ask you about, which I associate with a good work-life balance and that's taking care of your shed everything I do I like to have uh, frameworks but I like things to be like super simple and it will come through in just the way I speak I often think is kind of very straightforward easy to understand uh, one of the first lessons I had kind of marketing side was it's really really easy to make something complicated and really really hard to make something simple but the most powerful propositions and the most compelling propositions will be something that your 90-year-old nan can understand and a five-year-old can understand. And so the shed is a very simple kind of thing that I uh, follow for myself, which is just a how am I sort of going to be at my best? And it basically is sleep. So am I getting enough sleep? Am I um, hydrated enough? And uh, personally, I confuse being hungry with thirsty far too much. So it's it's minimum of two liters of water a day, sometimes three at a push. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. <laughs> um, exercise. I'm really disciplined with that sort of hour to myself in the morning of doing it. So um, at the moment, I'm doing my Barry's uh, boot camp from home hit sessions 
um, with my favorite instructor, Sam. So exercise, get enough of that and diet as well. Um, now, that's one that clearly has the greatest flexibility because uh, I, I am partial to a gin and tonic and a glass of wine and love a 90% dark chocolate. It's a good, healthy diet, but with treats. Yeah, exactly. It's what life's about, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There's a book that I'm reading at the moment, which had a lovely sentence, which is, you're very good at scheduling work. Why don't you start scheduling joy? And I thought that was such a powerful, simple thing. And obviously, they then go on to describe what joy is. So it's a treat or, you know, getting something done, making sure that you exercise, uh, making sure you go outside. You know, it could be any forms of joy. But I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I want to tell everyone. I love that. I've never, ever heard that. And yet, again, that's the simplest thing ever of why would you not schedule in that sort of joy time as well? Yeah, go for a walk, put it in your to-do list. Yeah, I I love that. And um, with that, you know, sometimes there is, um, you start to feel a little bit guilty if you sort of put that time in. But I think actually the flip side of when you feel joy, how much more sort of productive or how how much better are you as a team leader or a kind of colleague or, you know, all of those things, just because it isn't a sort of linear or a transactional like delivery doesn't mean that the halo impact of that is not having sort of uh, the same impact as being able to deliver a piece of work. Yeah, exactly. I'm a better person when I've been outside. It's a simple fact. Yeah. And so I'm much nicer to work with, which means I go with my colleagues, which means I can make something happen that, you know, necessarily wouldn't if I wasn't accessible. Also, I rely a lot on creativity. I need to be able to come up with new ideas constantly. And I know that when I reach the end of the season and I'm tired, I I don't have new ideas. But if I can take time off and go see something, especially if we're lucky, obviously not last year, but lucky enough to be able to expose to different cultures, taking something outside in is going to change my output for sure yeah I do uh, thinking about it I always schedule exercise um so that you know I don't have any meeting and it's sometimes it's really difficult with the time zones that we work on but I always say to the team like please don't put anything in from 7 30 to 8 30 in the morning because I want to do my exercise I always say to them you know try not to put a meeting in at lunch because I'll get really hangry and I'll be better if I've eaten <laughs> versus thinking about the fact I'm really hungry it's in their interest as well. If they're if they're pitching something to you and they want you yeah. to say yes, <laughs> just don't come yeah. and you're hungry. Exactly. <laughs> feed, feed me and I'll be so much better for it. I'd like to ask you about stress, actually. Yeah. Because we've got, again, inherently relentless, fast-paced, and you have a lot on your plate. Do you experience stress and how do you deal with it? 100% experience stress. And... For me, it is recognizing whether I'm putting that stress on myself or where that is kind of coming from. And um, some of the things that I do to help is make sure that I have sort of time out. So often if I'm feeling really, really overwhelmed, the worst thing for me is to just kind of sit and sort of plow through. But actually, if I say, right, put the laptop down, whether it's kind of cook something, eat something, sleep come back to it tomorrow, different frame of mind, that can just be enough to unlock or making sure that I go outside and I sort of have a walk. So it's it's recognizing that just by staying at it isn't going to alleviate it. And at the same time, I'm a massive fan of uh, prioritizing. So there is a belief that we're all you know we're multitasking all the time and for me it's separating out the fact I've got loads of different things going on at the same time but I can't do them all together at the same time so it's being quite clear of how I sort of frame and structure kind of time to be focused in sort of areas often if I can't do everything you say it's on my list but I can't do that now this is where I'm focused and saying that out loud and saying that to other people is a game changer, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, everyone is reasonable. So again, it's like, okay, just agree. This is the most important thing for us to get right. Yes, I know that this is on your list. This is important, but that can wait until we've done that. Do you agree? Or do you want me to take something else out of here and I can put that in? 
and then everyone's very very reasonable keeping in mind who this podcast for and it's very much for people who want to come into motorsport what advice have you been given that you'd like to pass on that you think would be useful to someone that wants to come and join us it comes i would say there there are a couple of things so some of the advice um that i've kind of carried with me through my career is the importance of curiosity the more that you can sort of build that that muscle 100% keep doing that there was a phrase that i was sort of told about being bold being brave and get comfortable with being uncomfortable and that is also kind of linked into that sort of curiosity and maybe this is from a gender perspective uh maybe women feel this more but there is this sense that quite often we we hold ourselves back more because we don't think that we're good enough or that you're going to be able to kind of go in and and uh, be at the same level as someone else and it's sort of knowing and recognizing that sort of feeling of when you're uncomfortable, it's generally because you're actually at a, at a place of learning and that's a great place to be. So don't fear it, almost like create those situations and put yourself in it. And couple to that is think about your support networks. So who are those people that you can go to that are going to give you that sort of boost of confidence? Who's that person that you can go to who's like your phone a friend that can give you that advice as to how to solve a problem? That's something that I've kind of always carried with me. And actually, specifically on the sort of marketing side, uh, when I was at Honda, uh, one of the sort of things I did was the um, advertising for sort of Europe. And um, I had a president um, at the time, Scottish guy called Ken Keir. And whenever I presented work to him, the only question he would ask me was, does it make you feel scared? And it was the most powerful question he could have asked because he recognized the power of effective marketing is going to um, have a level of distinctiveness and it will be differentiated. And unless we felt uncomfortable by the unknown ourselves, it was never going to kind of cut through and do what it had to do as a challenger brand within the kind of marketplace. And so that's always kind of been a piece of advice that I've kind of kept with me and I, I often share as well. Ellie, thank you so, so much for your time today. It's been absolutely amazing chatting to you. Orly, well, for me, it's a privilege to join you. As I said, I absolutely loved Series 1 of Racing Live. So, um, yeah, privileged to be on uh, and part of it for your second chapter. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can, tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all means so much and it really helps new people find our little podcast. I read every message and every mention, as you know, and it means a huge deal. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to make this show, as you can imagine. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 